Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, generating bytecodes, you know, Java bytecodes um, for funny languages. And you know, this is a talk that I've given before, um, sometime in the past, and it's still entertaining. And there's a, been a lot of people who you know want to pay attention to what's going on here because there are a lot of subtle issues in generating fast bytecodes as opposed to just generating bytecodes. Um, so, so why do we want to generate bytecodes at all? Because JVMs are for used for lots of non-Java languages. Um, when I was doing the, the Hexadata H2O work, I generated bytecodes for serialization. But also, um, you know, Scala, Clojure, JRuby, uh, JavaScript Rhino, and, and uh, you know, half a dozen other languages are all generating bytecodes on a JVM. And so why would they want to do it on a JVM? Because you get a free garbage collection, you get free heavy-duty multi-threading support, and of course you get a free JIT, which is where the fast part comes in here. And so, you know, I, I went through this round of attempting to write a really simple loop and see if any of these languages could take it down to the metal, like go as fast as you reasonably could go. And I on purpose picked a, a benchmark that I know Java would go to the metal, and then I showed that it did. And then I asked the same question of these other languages. Um, and so I wrote this really dumb, simple loop in, in half a dozen languages, and I looked at the performance, and then I went to the next level in, and I looked at the jitted code and asked, you know, why did it generate this code and not what you would have hoped to see um, it generate? And, and try to figure out what the fail mode was. So I wasn't trying to decide which language is the fastest, um, because in particular, these languages mostly have um, what, what their call to fame is, is about uh, uh, ease of maintenance, time to market, ease of programming, a particular domain, you know, Ruby on Rails, very specifically targeting a certain kind of domain. I'm not trying to say, you know, this was the, the right or the best or the worst, I mean, any of those kind of things. Um, I also totally ignored, um, you know, language micro benchmark mismatches like fixed nums, languages that only did fixed nums or only did big nums or only did capital D doubles. And I just tried as hard as I could to make this little benchmark run fast on these languages by, by adjusting the benchmark to be, you know, targeted to the language. So again, I wasn't trying to discover who is the fastest. Um, and I totally changed the benchmark to be more fair to various languages, um, like using doubles instead of ints for JavaScript. Um, and then I tested it where I had the best low-level performance tools. So at that time, was on the Azul JVM, the, uh, the, the, the thing that's now Azul now called Zing is like the best low-level performance, you know, JVM performance analysis tool I've ever seen. Okay, so I wrote this loop, and this loop is for I equals one to 100 million, do, and then it's sum uh, is equal to sum plus uh, sum zord divided by, sum zord i divided by i. So let's say that again, sum plus equals, and then paren, sum zord i divided by i. So there's no array references in here, it's just integer math. Um, and of course, double for JavaScript. And, and the, the loop is like a closed form you know, problem. You, you probably can come up with an instant solution, but it's beyond any compiler to generate a closed form solution. So the compilers need to go do some work. So then I looked at what Java does. And this is you know, the, the language semantics, obviously, and, and the benchmark I wrote, obviously, are all completely well fit. And so I know what I was going to get out. And indeed, I got it, which was there is a, a, a zor, a div, and an add for the body of the loop as expected. And then it was unrolled half a dozen times. And one add compare and branch 
for the value of i to, to branch around the loop, but only once per the unrolling. So this is about as tight as code as you could get, and it would be very similar to what I would write if I was going to write this in, in you know, hand-rolled assembly. And, and it got the performance you'd expect. This was really fast. So I did the same thing with Scala, and life sucked pretty bad. But Scala has these ways to go drive down to primitives and demand in a type-safe way that you're going to use primitive math. And when I did that, I also got the same performance out. Then I looked at closure, and the answer was uh, kind of almost close. Um, very allocation heavy. There were all kinds of oddball performance warts where things didn't optimize well. Um, but you could see we're trying hard. I looked at JRuby, and, and major inline was not happening. And I believe it was because people were being misled by debugging flag, having had a discussion with Charles Nutter, who I now believe this is fixed um, with maybe with the, the change in the JDK to use uh, change of the JVM to use invoke dynamic. And I looked at JavaScript and, uh, and Rhino, and there it was death by capital D double, not lowercase d double. And then I looked at this very interesting, um, totally inline x86 emulator called JPC, which I'm going to skip over now. It was a fun experiment, but I think JPC is not actually useful. Um, so let's go back around to visit the languages in turn and looked at, at where they failed. So Java did not fail, but of course, it's an unfair advantage. I knew it was going to work. I wrote the loop specifically that Java would totally get it right, and it did. OK, Scala wasn't going to get it right unless I used the special Scala typing system to prevent auto big num inflation, prevent you know things to do with funny types that might have. Um, and of course, the semantics are borrowed heavily from Java semantics, so I could get there. Um, you know, it took some work, but not too much. And then Scholar was giving me good, good performance out. Closure. Um, God, the good news is there were no obvious subroutine calls in the inner loops. So you inlined everything down. Well, that's good. Bad news is, is there was a bazillion ephemeral objects being generated. I don't know why, but there was all kinds of objects being made. And my theory here is that a really cheap escape analysis could probably use to clean up the object allocation. Um, However, I couldn't get rid of the fixnum checks. So in Scala, I could simply say, blow off overflow, silently wrap integers. Um, I couldn't do it in Clojure. There were fixnum overflow checks everywhere. Um, and then there were a lot of weird holes, performance holes, where reflection calls were not optimized um, and here and there. And I don't know where those came from. Jython was another almost close one. Same fixnum issue, overflow checks everywhere. Same massive allocation problem, and a few extra locks thrown in, maybe because they're trying to match the the gil, you know, the, the Python's global interpreter lock. Um, JavaScript Rhino implementation, um, all things are capital D double, no matter what I did. So same allocation issues as the fixnum folks. You had to make a new double for every uh, you know tiny piece of math. Um, but no fixed num checks because you're using capital D doubles and those are allowed to you know overflow however they're done. So now you back up for a second, look at some of the, the two different major issues here. One was people who use like fixed nums. Um, there's an allocation cost for making those. Reclaiming the dead objects was cheap, but allocating them was not cheap. Why not? They have final fields. What's that mean? Well, even on an x86, you have to insert a memory barrier when you're setting a final field so that there's no chance of seeing the pre-final field version upon exiting you know, the allocation instance, the constructor. And so that means every Java object which has a final field um, has a memory fence 
at the end of the constructor. And this just adds up if you make a bazillion tiny objects with final fields. You, you could do much better with the JET with some sort of ultra stupid escape analysis and, and some tweaking, but you still have to get around like integer, capital I integers dot value of caches all the integers from negative 128 to positive 128, which means that if you make an integer object using value of, you might get a new object which does not escape and you can throw it away and then you can, you know, inline the, the entire capital I integer math equation in the JET and remove it all to away, move it completely. Or you might have one of these small integers, in which case you have an object that is pre-existing and will certainly, you know, exist outside the lifetime of your execution because it's going to exist for, you know, forever and a day. So you can't get away from, you know, the object will escape. And so it's not easy to say, here I can blow off the caching, only say it's, you know, a, a non-escaping capital I integer, and therefore I'm going to get rid of the allocation altogether. This is a difficult job now to do in the JIT. Um, there's another major issue, and this one's on JRuby, for which, in fact, Invoke Dynamic came around specifically to help solve this problem. And, and what happens here is that the call semantics in JRuby, and actually in a lot of these languages, the call semantics are not the standard Java call semantics. Sort of obviously, it's one of the major reasons you have your own language. And so you have to have some sort of logic thrown in in your, gener in your generated bytecodes to do the call semantics that you want. And this is usually big enough that you end up with some little trampoline function. Everyone calls into the trampoline on every call to go find out what their proper call target is. And so in the, you know, from the JVM's point of view, you end up getting, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of call sites calling into a trampoline, and then the trampoline returns a target that is 100,000 different targets. Way, way, way more targets than you could ever hope to, you know, analyze and say there's a common single hot target. In, in JRuby's case, they were looking at the plus print inlining flag on the jitted code come out of the JVM, but the flag was lying because it would claim something was inlined when it was not, and it was very specifically a further failure of a, of a thing called biomorphic inlining, um, which was you know two target inlining, um, which was put in for NIOs, uh, directed byte buffers versus you know direct uh, versus heat byte buffers, um, but it wasn't actually getting inlining, and I confirmed this by you know using GDB on a Java six and breaking in, uh, looking directly at the generated code. So the goal here is to have you know, some function that A is making a call to X. Um, he goes to the trampoline, but he wants to get to the X target. And B calls Y, and he wants to get to the Y target. And Z, and you know, C calls Z, and wants to get to the Z target. And they're all going through this trampoline. And, and what you'd like to do is get the trampoline lookup out of the way in the JIT. Like the JIT does the lookup for you by semantically analyzing the trampoline and produces the correct call target. But what really happens is that during the profiling run, there's essentially very limited inlining, and the trampoline's too complicated to inline. So A, B, and C all call into the same trampoline looking to get X, Y, or Z out of it, and the outputs are either X, Y, or Z. And so the trampoline has a blend of calls coming in, of 10,000 of our calls coming in, and 10,000 results coming out. And the profiling is way too many to profile individually, so they're all just confused. And you hit the, the mode that says, this is a megamorphic call site. And then when the heavyweight JIT kicks in, 
he is much more generous inlining rules, and he's happy to inline the trampoline in each of A, B, and C, but he has no profiling for what the output is. It's all a blend of 10,000 different targets. Since there's no dominant target, there's no attempt at a guarded inlining, and there's just a generic, I'm going to do a, you know, a, a virtual call the hard way, load, 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 jump register, and you don't get the good uh, fast performance out because you failed inline. And then because you failed inline there, you don't get the follow-on inline that might have it. Okay, so what lessons can we take away from here? So, so it is possible to get to the metal on languages other than Java because Scala does it. And it's easy to get, uh, get misled because, you know, JRuby got misled by looking at a flag that had no QA support. It's a debugging flag. And the rules on inlining are fairly complicated and subtle, but so much of your performance depends on it. Um, and the exact details matter, your class hierarchy, whether your final or interfaces, and what the targets look like. And then, you know, what are the other JVMs you might be running on? You're running on a, on a cell phone using Dalvik, you know, an Android. Maybe you got different inline rules. So your, your heuristics change all the time, and you're trying to figure out what it is to do the right, you know, how you're going to get in. So, so there are just some really subtle problems here and getting funny call targets to line up and go the right way. Um, so, so how do you know if what you're trying to do is doing what you want to do? So you know, when do you know your bytecodes are working well? So the problem here is that you have a lack of good tools for telling you why an optimizer bailed out. And, and by the way, the C++ C++ and Fortran folks have been failing this for the last 50 years as well. Um, the supercomputer guys for vectorizing, if they fail to vectorize a loop, typically performance is so slow that it's essentially a bug. It's like the heat death of the universe to execute the code. And yet, it's not a compiler fail. And that's the sort of the issue you want to have here. You would like it to essentially be a compiler fail if you can't get inlining to be possible. You know, whether or not it's actually done is one thing, but if it's not even possible because the, the JIT doesn't have the information it needs, then, you know, you'd like this to be a, a compiler type system fail. And then, of course, it's not. So what I did here to confirm that things were working or not was I ran the, the hot benchmark. I wrote a very simple code. The reason it was simple is so I could tell what the hell it was doing by eyeballing the assembly. I couldn't have a lot of assembly code in there um, you know, with complicated stuff going on. So I wrote a really simple loop. I then you know, made it hot so I know it would get jitted. And then I ran it and I broke in with GDB and I halted. And because it's running a long time in the hot code, Whenever I break in with GDB, I'm almost surely running in the hot loop. Then I can look at the assembly and see if the translation went as I expected. Is this an easy thing to do? No. If you're trying to get performance out of a, you know, generating bytecodes, maybe it's worth you know, figuring a little bit out about how to read x86 assembly and doing it that way. Um, at the same time, I ran with a lot of debugging flags, in particular turning on all the did I compile it and what did I inline flags? And that way I found you know, the, the lying inlining flag. Um, but it was very helpful to understand what the actual call hierarchy was. Um, and then the, finally, you know, go grab Zing from Azul Systems. I think you can download it for free. It's a pain in the butt to set up. But by God, if you want to know what's going on inside your x86, that was really, really useful. Um, Okay, so, so I'm going to switch topics for a little bit here and talk a little bit about Clojure's uh, uh, concurrency. So Clojure's you know, proposing an alternative to concurrency that essentially looks like software transactional memory. And I tried to play this scaling game with it to see how it would do. And this brought me down this new path as an alternate path, which was 
most of our concurrent libraries that we see today, they're all, I would claim to be performance immature. What the hell does that mean? It means that they don't give you reliable performance under load. And it's sort of all the difference between production mode usage and you know laptop debugger developer usage. So what happened with Clojure is that I could keep adding worker units into a thread pool um, more and more and more until I hit some threshold point where adding more, uh, more workers would cause a fall off and then a complete crash in performance. So it wasn't graceful under pressure. And then thinking back, I saw the same problem happen multiple times in other contexts. So concurrent database requests. If you add, have one, you get a certain throughput. If you had two, life got better and you got more throughput. If you added five or 10, throughput kept going up. Then it kind of flattens. Then as you add more requests, it goes down and then it craters and falls to death. What the hell happens there? Why can't the database just queue these requests and maintain max throughput? Why does it keep trying to you know, support more and more requests until it begins essentially thrashing um, and dying? And, and OSs have long understood the concept of disk drive thrashing and have long had support to queue requests prevent thrashing. And this is, this is a problem that happens with many of the sort of immature concurrency libraries where they're not reliable under pressure. You add more threads and you add more work and things got better and got better until they topped out and then they crashed. And after they crashed, you never recovered because your work never got done because your throughput has crashed until you basically cut off the work, let the system catch up and get back to its good fast throughput mode. And I've seen this in a variety of contexts. So I guess I claim that I would love to see libraries, concurrent libraries that handled concurrent load where they do the thing that, you know, um, they do the thing that networking stack does all the time. It does queue requests, it does do pushback, it does, uh, does some buffering, but it can't do a lot. And it starts doing pushback down through the network stack back to the, the producers and telling them to stop sending. And, and this should happen in all your mature you know, concurrency libs. If you can't handle the throughput in the lib, it's time to push back to the caller as opposed to just buffering or trying them all to thrash yourself to death. Okay, so I guess that was you know too much stuff for this one blog. And um, if you liked what you heard, please find me on you know cliffc.org/blog. And if you really like this, you can sign up on iTunes at cliffc.org/blog/itunes and subscribe and you know review my my blog. And and that's it. Thanks. Bye bye.